And if you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to grab one. Uh, If you don't have one, they're under your seat backs. You can go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 1. I'm sorry, not John, Luke chapter 1. Oh, oh, Acts, we'll get there eventually. So last week was a lot of fun. Can, can, Mike, can you turn me down just a little bit? Or whomever's got it. Terry, somebody, somebody turn me down. Thanks. Uh, so last week was a lot of fun with the Easter service. And, and the whole point of it was simply to glorify God for the single greatest act of love in history. The, and, and Easter's a big deal. I love this cross. I love the light shining up at it. I want to keep this here for a while just because it just reminds me that over everything that we do, the cross overshadows it all. It is the single greatest declaration in history that Jesus Christ was who he claimed to be, the Son of God, God's anointed Redeemer, and that he did what the Bible claims that he did, namely to take our sins upon himself, pay the penalty, so that we who have messed up, we who have rebelled, we who have run from our Creator God and fallen short of His righteous, holy standard, rather than being declared to be sinners, can be declared saints. We prodigals can come home because of the cross. And that's what we celebrated. And last week, one of the things that we briefly touched on was the effect that it had. For me, the single greatest uh, evidence that Jesus actually rose from the dead wasn't the empty tomb. It wasn't all of the details in the scripture. It wasn't even all of the, you know, evidence. It was simply the fact that the disciples who saw him or claimed to see him were radically transformed. Their entire lives, the way that they, they approached even the authorities was radically transformed. And we touched on it briefly. And then Lee touched on the fact that he has been radically transformed, that God is continuing to change lives even today, 2,000 years later. But because we we just scratched the surface last week, Lee and I felt like it was really important for us to really dive a little bit deeper into exploring the reverberations of the cross, especially seeing the fact that we, in many ways, are, are the spiritual ancestors, or we are the spiritual, um, you know, children. I don't know what the word is right now. It's not coming to me. Descendants. Thank you, Tim. We are the spiritual descendants. It's going to be one of those days, so be ready to jump in and help me out here. We are the spiritual descendants of the disciples, those first eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ whose lives were transformed by the risen Lord. And so this morning we're going to explore the book that continues to tell their story beyond the Gospels. But we're going to begin in Luke because I want us to just understand a little bit of context for what we're studying and who it is that wrote it. For me, it's really, I, I used to teach English, and it's very important whenever you read a book to understand context. One of the number one things that we do to take this book out of context is that we will ter- we'll kind of do one of these things. Okay, you know, the plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. Okay, uh, whatever, you know, take it out of context. You, that had no help whatsoever, sorry. Well, there you go, you can go home then. Um, no, the, 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 I am so, did I have sugar this morning, babe? Cause I am like ADD to the max right now. 
our tendency is to kind of rip a, a, a passage or a verse out of its context, kind of like pulling a, a limb off a tree to beat it over the head, you know, to beat somebody over the head with our proof text without taking into consideration who it was written to, who wrote it and the context into which it was written. And when we do that, when we take scripture out of its context, we can twist it to mean anything that we want. And if you were to look at the history of, of Christendom, there have been some ridiculous things that have been supported by scripture that has been taken out of context. So it's imperative for us to understand who it is that wrote it, who it was written to, and the purpose behind it before we start going, okay, well, what does this mean to me today? Does that make sense? It, to, to use an analogy, it's like running the bases. You know, first base is, what does this actually say? What do the words mean? Second base is, what did it mean to the original audience that it was written to? Then and only then after we've run those two bases do we go to third base, which is, well, what is this saying to us today some 2,000 years later? And then finally, home plate is that question we love to ask. Well, what does this mean to me today? How should I respond to it? If we were to run to third base first, we'd be out. So today, I just want to begin by getting a little bit of context. As you know, the Bible is, hopefully as you know, the, the Bible is divided into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, the Old Testament begins with creation, and it runs all the way up until about 400 years before Jesus Christ came on the scene. And there's history, there is wisdom literature like the Psalms and Proverbs, and then there are, there are prophets, people who were kind of filled with the Spirit of God and began to proclaim, here's what God is saying to the people. And typically it wasn't, here's what's coming. It was more, here's what's going on right now. Open your eyes to what's up. And we have about a 400-year gap between Malachi, which is the Italian prophet right at the very end there. That was a joke. And then the beginning of the New Testament. The New Testament picks up with Jesus' birth. And there are four Gospels that begin the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, those four Gospels were written by four different individuals, two of whom were eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ's life. They were disciples who actually walked with him. That would be Matthew, who was a tax collector before Jesus called him in, and then John, Jesus, you know, the, the one whom Jesus loved, John calls himself, which I think is the most humble statement you could ever make about yourself, right? <laughs> then you've got two other guys who were not themselves eyewitnesses, but were close to people who were. So you have... Mark, who was the secretary of Peter. Do you think Peter had some stories to share? Okay, as a fisherman, probably wasn't the best with writing and stuff. So he had this guy, Mark, that he told all of his stories to. And so in a lot of ways, we almost have Peter's eyewitness account through Mark. And then we come to Luke. Now, Luke is different from all of them because Luke wasn't a secretary to one of the disciples. He was actually a doctor. And Luke began to journey around with this guy named Paul who felt like God had called him to be an ambassador of hope and reconciliation to the Gentiles. And so as Luke is traveling around during Paul's missionary journeys, he's asking him questions and he's learning. And I'm sure that his mind was just kind of blown by this Jesus guy. And so he's like, you know what? I want, you know, Paul, you said in 1 Corinthians that there were over 500 people who saw Jesus rise from the dead, many of whom are still alive. So you know what I want to do? I want to study it to find out if it's really true. I want to ask those eyewitnesses what they saw, what they experienced. And at the beginning of Luke's gospel, he explains exactly what he was about. So if you're there at Luke chapter 1, we're just going to read a couple of verses here before we then head to Acts, Darlene. We will get there, I promise. 
So he says, Luke chapter one, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled amongst us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the first who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So we've heard a lot of things. A lot of people have been telling us what they saw and what they did. And so with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know with certainty the things that have been taught. So in other words, hey, rather than just taking everybody's word for it, I wanted to explore it. I wanted to study it. I wanted to cross-examine all the witnesses so that I could have a, a clear picture of of the beginning of a completely new era in which God has reconnected with his people. Now, we don't know who Theophilus is. My guess is, I mean, theologians have a lot of different ideas about him. One thing is probably pretty clear, and that is that Theophilus probably was a financial supporter to Luke, somebody who was helping to, um, as Luke was a doctor, a lot of times they would have people that would financially support them. And he probably had this guy, Theophilus, who was helping finance him as he was going around doing his travels, learning what he could about Jesus. And so he's saying, hey, I want to tell you what I have learned. He does that. Now, if you've got your Bible, now turn a couple of chapters or a couple of books to the right to the book of Acts. Because the difference between Luke and the other three guys that wrote gospel messages is that Luke, his role in this whole thing didn't start until way after Jesus' resurrection. He was somebody who followed Paul. He was a, a partner with him in some of his missionary travels. And in fact, as we, go, as we begin to delve into Acts, he's going to begin to, during those sections that he was a part of, he's going to begin to say, well, we did this and we did that as opposed to he did this and he did that. And so unlike the other three gospel writers who basically went up until Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven and said, okay, I've shared everything that needs to be shared, Luke goes, now that, that's act one. Now I want to share with you what came after this. I want to share what God did in and through the hearts of the people that were left behind. And so we read here in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book... Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over the period of 40 days and spoke with them about the kingdom of God. And on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this commandment or this command. Do not leave Jerusalem. But wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around and asked him, well, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now we're going to stop there. We're just going to look at those first eight verses. We'll finish the chapter next week. But a couple of things I want us to notice. The first thing is that Acts really is like Act 2 or the, the, the second part of the Gospel of Luke. Notice in that first verse, he says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do. If, you want, if, if it's your own Bible, you can underline that word began. If it's ours, whatever, you can do it if you want to. All, all that Jesus began to do and to teach until he was taken up into heaven. 
why the word began. Because Jesus was healing people and he was teaching people and he was casting out demons and, and raising the dead and he was sharing the gospel. But ultimately, that was simply the beginning. Jesus dying on the cross and raising from the dead was the single greatest moment in which he declared that now the shackles of sin have been broken. The things that got in the way of mankind being intimately connected with their God from the very beginning of Genesis had now been undone and we have a way to come into God's presence. However, that good news needed to be spread. And Jesus, heading up to heaven, goes, it's not for me to finish that. So now it's your job. And in a lot of ways, what we see is that the gospel of Luke is kind of like the rock that gets thrown into a pond. The cross and everything is, boom, that's the initial moment. That was the beginning. But Acts begins to chart the course of those ripples as they begin to make reverberations, first in Jerusalem, then into Judea, the, the greater area. So it's like in Costa Mesa, and then in Orange County, and then into Samaria, those places that we don't go, like Santa Ana, or, or Compton, or I don't know, you know, wherever, Tijuana, whatever. Yeah, in, into those areas, and then to the ends of the earth. These ripples began to go, and that's what Luke wants to begin to explain. Here's what I saw God do and what he is continuing to do even here and now. So in my first book, Theophilus, I wrote about what Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. Notice, you notice that he uses that word apostles. In the, in the Gospels, they're called disciples, those who are learning from Jesus. But now that Jesus is about to go... He changes the name for them to apostles, which means sent one, one who is sent to be a representative. And that's what they've become. These disciples have now been called to go and share the good news. Verse three, after his suffering, he presented himself to these guys and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Let me ask you a question for a moment. If you saw someone whom you knew had died standing in front of you, what sort of questions would you have for them? I mean, would I, I, I know the first thing I'd be like, am I seeing something? Like, Donovan, do you, see, do you see that too? Jesus, is that you? Really? Uh, can I see the, can I touch the nail holes? Are you hungry? Right? Because if you're a, a, just a figment of my imagination, you're not going to be able to eat food. And at the end of the Gospel of Luke, we actually see Jesus literally coming and sitting down with them going, hey, I'd love some food. Yes, guys, here, look. Here are the nail holes. Here, there's where the spear went in. Would you like to touch it? Go ahead. You know, all that kind of thing. Just to convince them that, yes, what they were seeing was true. And so for about 40 days, he presented himself to them and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. All four Gospels use this term, either kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven and acts. This is a term that comes up again and again and again. It's a really important term. So right now what I want to do is I want to take a couple of minutes and define that term kingdom of God. And in order to do that, I want to step back one step and simply ask, well, what is a kingdom? How do we define a kingdom? How do you know what a kingdom is? Probably the best definition I've ever seen for it is, is written by a guy named Dallas Willard who wrote a book called The Divine Conspiracy. 
And in it, he defined a kingdom as anywhere where the sovereign ruler's will is carried out or anywhere where the sovereign ruler's will is done. So, for instance, let's say there was a king who had a particular affinity for the color green. He loved green. And so he said, all homes in my kingdom must be painted green. You'd have a pretty good idea of the boundaries of his kingdom based upon where the greenhouses ended and the teal and yellow and purple or whatever color houses began, right? Because his kingdom boundary would be delineated by those who obeyed and submitted to his will. A kingdom is wherever the sovereign ruler's will is carried out. And by that definition, we could define the kingdom of God as wherever God's sovereign will is done. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's, let's go back to Genesis for a moment. Because it was God's intention when he created Adam and Eve that they would be his kingdom representatives. That is precisely the reason that he created them in his image, to be his representatives, his image bearers, that let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they can rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and all of these kind of things. Our purpose as man, as humanity, being his representatives, is tied to the fact that we are created in his image and is tied to this desire that we would carry out his will. Of course, it didn't take very long before Adam and Eve kind of tanked that. They, they flexed their free will. They ate from the tree, disobeyed, and suddenly sin and shame come screaming into God's good creation, and it sets a wedge between themselves and God. And suddenly, they're incapable of being his perfect representatives. A few generations later, God forms the kingdom of Israel again for the express purpose of them being his representatives. Specifically, he said, I am going to make you an, a, a kingdom of priests, a holy set apart nation that you would declare the praises of your God to the other nations. In other words, the nation of Israel was intended, was formed to be God's representatives. And he specifically gave them the law in order to help them understand what it looked like for them to interact both with him and with one another as agents or representatives or members of his kingdom on earth. You following me here? Then again, Israel screwed it up too. Because they took that law and they said, oh, here's the ladder that we have to climb to, to, to be righteous. And they made the focus on the law so much so that in a lot of ways they, they held other nations at arm's length. They weren't representatives. They didn't move towards other nations. If anything, they ostracized themselves from other nations. And they made it about themselves. It can be very inward focused. And so they kind of missed the point. And so finally, God's like, fine. If, if mankind is not capable of doing this, then I'm going to take this upon myself. And he sent Jesus Christ, his son, to take on human flesh, to empty himself of his divinity so that he could take on human flesh, walk amongst mankind, and be the perfect representative of God's kingdom. And that's exactly what Jesus did. In fact, Jesus' very words, he said, listen, I have not come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. That is a declaration of one who is completely submitted to the Lord and saying, I want to be an agent of his kingdom. Even on the night that he was going to be arrested and ultimately crucified, he knew what was coming. <laughs> and in the garden 
of Gethsemane on his knees praying, God, if there's any way that we could do this differently where it doesn't require me to go to there and bleed and die and be in a lot of pain, let's do it that way. But not my will, but yours be done. And that is precisely what Jesus did, is he submitted to God's will because he was an agent of the kingdom of God. And throughout his three-year ministry, he exhibited, he, he pushed forward the kingdom values. Rather than pushing, keeping at arm's length those who were broken, he moved towards the broken. Rather than you know, being disgusted by the untouchables, he moved towards them, he touched them, he healed them. He fed the hungry, cared for the broken, cast out demons, raised the dead. Not only that, but he also began to teach other people how they could become members of the kingdom of God. He invited them into that. He became a, a, a beautiful, perfect representation or representative of the kingdom of God, bringing about God's will. Does that make sense? All right, just making sure you're still awake. So, For about 40 days, he spoke about the kingdom of God. Why? Because he's about to leave. And he's now going to entrust this mantle of being God's representative to these disciples who, let's be honest, don't have the best track record. I mean, these are the guys who haven't gotten it from the very beginning. These are the guys who who were kind of the also-rans. There were some people who would go to, uh, you know, Pharisee school to learn scriptures. and, And for those that made it, they would ultimately keep going to school until they became Pharisees themselves, and they be, which in that day was a good thing. Pharisee was not a derogatory statement. It was actually you know, a, a, something that people aspired to, kind of like saying, hey, my son's a doctor or an attorney or whatever it might be, right? So people wanted to be Pharisees, and some people made it, but when somebody dropped out of school because they just couldn't hack it, because they just weren't the best of the best, they would go back home and they would learn their parents' trade, kind of like maybe being a fisherman. And that's what many of these guys were. They were the also-rans, the, eh, okay, thanks, but no thanks. And that's the guys that Jesus began to gather around himself. They were the kind of guys that when the authorities came to arrest Jesus, they scattered. And when their, their Lord, their rabbi, was crucified, they hid, terrified that what, it would hap- what had happened to him would now happen to them. And now all of a sudden, God's go, or Jesus is going, hey, by the way, what I was doing, you're now going to do. You're going to be God's representatives on earth. Do you think that that would be a little overwhelming for them to hear? The correct answer would be yes. <laughs> so the rubber's about to meet the road, and he's teaching them. He's preparing them. However, they would not be capable of being Jesus' representatives any more than you and I would be capable of doing it because we are closer akin to Adam and Eve. We're closer akin to Israel than we are to Jesus. If Adam and Eve couldn't do it, and if the nation of Israel couldn't do it, why on earth do you think that they could do it? Why do you think that we could do it? And by ourselves, by themselves, they couldn't. Which is specifically why the very next thing that Jesus says in verse 4, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem. This is an odd thing, right? If you're asking them to be his representatives, don't leave Jerusalem, at least not yet. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John the Baptist baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
Because that Holy Spirit would be an empowerment to the disciples that would transform them. It was the Holy Spirit that would give them both the courage and the ability to begin to share the good news without fear of the consequences. And as we recall from last week, there were some major consequences. Many of them were martyred for their faith. In fact, the word witness itself in Greek is martero, from which we get the word martyr. And many of them were martyred for being witnesses. They witnessed with their very lives that they believed what they claimed to believe and that they, they were convinced that Jesus Christ was the way, the truth, and the life. So don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, that Holy Spirit who will fill you up and empower you. Now, it's interesting, because if they are, if they are being asked to follow in Jesus' footsteps, even the gift of the Holy Spirit there at the very beginning is exactly in line with Jesus' footsteps. Because do you think back to Jesus' ministry. Before he ever healed a person, before he ever fed anybody miraculously, before he ever walked on water, before he ever gave his first sermon, before he ever called a disciple, he went to the Jordan River to his cousin John the Baptist and he says, I need you to baptize me because this is right. He walked into the water and John baptized him. When he came up out of the water, the heavens opened up and the Holy Spirit descended like a dove and landed upon him. And the Father spoke and said, You're my son whom I love and with you I'm well pleased. And the Holy Spirit stayed with him and it was the Holy Spirit that empowered him to do everything that he did because remember, when Jesus took on human flesh, in order to truly be able to enter into our shoes, he had to remove his godness, his his divinity, his ability to have all of that power. He removed that and stepped into our shoes. And so it was the Holy Spirit that empowered him to walk on water. It was the Holy Spirit that empowered him to change water into wine. It was the Holy Spirit that empowered him to raise the dead. It was the Holy Spirit that used him to become the Messiah that ultimately was raised from the dead. It was the Spirit of God that did that. Not Jesus flexing his power. And that's why there's hope for us. Because the same spirit that empowered Jesus was now being given to the disciples. Making them into apostles. Ones that were being sent and filled up. But even then, even in the midst of seeing Jesus risen from the dead, even with the promise that the Holy Spirit will be given to you, these guys still didn't fully get it. Look at the next verse. I love this because, okay, they've seen Jesus risen from the dead. They've touched the nail holes. They've eaten with him. He's been teaching them for like three and a half years now. He's just been pouring into them. And their next question, verse 6, they gathered around him and asked, So, Jesus, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They still don't get it. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is coming. And the disciples are going, so you, so you mean Israel, right? You're, you're going to kind of reestablish Israel and throw off the yoke of Rome? I mean, that, that's happening now, right? It, it, now, a little bit later, what's going on here? There's still Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God that would advance for the entire world, for Jew and Gentile alike, and they're still thinking in their parochial little bubble of, this is for us, right? And, and we're going to benefit from this, right? And, and I can only imagine that Jesus just kind of shook his head and goes, guys, you're missing the point. But rather than kind of go off on them, rather than kind of making fun of them or, or whatever, he, he simply responds in verse 7. 
Guys, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But listen to this, because here's what really matters. And he points them back to what matters. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And then, once that happens, not before, stay in Jerusalem until this happens, but once that happens, then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in this city in which you reside right now, and in Judea, the larger area around, and then in Samaria, those untouchable places, and then finally to the ends of the earth. You will take the good news beyond the walls of this place. It is much greater than the kingdom of Israel. This is the kingdom of God advancing, and you are going to help it advance. And that's what the entire book of Acts is about, is the advancement of the kingdom of God into this world. Okay, so we've run bases one and two. We have an understanding somewhat of what Jesus was saying to them. So now it's time for us to ask the question, so what? What does this mean to us some 2,000 years later? We are, we are the you know, spiritual progeny of, of these disciples. The, this, they were our forerunners, the ones that we've watched, and we're going to be studying how it goes. But what does this mean to us, what Jesus was saying to them? Why does it matter? Well, I'd say one of the things is I, I feel like we are a lot like those disciples. I, for one, am. Hear that God wants to use me to be his ambassador of hope and reconciliation. We see 2 Corinthians chapter 5, right? That he allows us to be his ambassadors of hope, as if we are representing Christ to the rest of the world. And yet, even though we are invited into this amazing opportunity to be members of God's kingdom and to help advance it into our neighborhoods and our families and our workplaces and our schools, my first thought is, well, God, what about me and my kingdom? Are you going to help me get a house? Are you going to help me find the right spouse? Are you going to help my children grow up to, to have great careers so that they won't have to live with me until, you know, whenever? Are you going to protect me from getting sick? Are you going to protect me from the IRS? Are you going to, you know, you fill in the blank. The kind of things we worry about, we start getting hyper fixated on our own little kingdom. And he's saying, listen, I'm not going to suggest to you for a moment that God doesn't care about our world. I'm not going to suggest to you that he doesn't care about our families or about our health. But I will tell you this. We have this tendency to think on the minute Today, this week, this month, God has a tendency to think in the eternal and recognizing that the momentary bumps in our life won't destroy us. If anything, he sees the bigger picture and he recognizes. I, I'll, I'll be honest, we were having a conversation up earlier before on, on, at 930 we get up there and we begin to pray. And sometimes we get there a little bit early and we're talking. And today we were just kind of talking about this whole uh, the, the presidential election is kind of going, oh my goodness, these are the best options we have. Ah, I'm not getting into it right now. <laughs> but I will say this. We're terrified, some of us, what this next year may bring and what effect it might have on our country, depending on what, who is brought in. And I will tell you this. God is bigger than a presidential election. And his kingdom will advance. And sometimes, sometimes, 
What it takes for his kingdom to advance is for us to be uncomfortable, not comfortable. Sometimes the only way that people will step foot into a church is if he allows, not makes happen, but allows planes to be able to fly into buildings, topple them so that we are just spent, sent spinning going, how on earth does this happen? The comfortable bubble that I feel like I live in has been burst and all of a sudden I feel like the ground beneath my feet has shifted. Now what? And in that moment, when, when our comfort has been stripped away, in that moment, sometimes that's what it takes for somebody to go to their knees and go, God, I need you. Why do bad things happen to good people? Because we live in a broken world. And in this world, we'll have trouble. But we can take heart that because of the cross, he's overcome the world. And even the brokenness of a political system, even the brokenness of people who would try to kill people simply to make a statement. Even those things don't get the last word. And I find hope in that. Even as our bodies break down and we struggle with cancer and we struggle with tumors and we struggle with addiction and we struggle with apathy. So no, I don't believe that God, oh, whatever, I, I, okay, I don't want to go too, too far. I simply want to suggest this. God is God, even in the midst of this broken world. And he invites us into that. He invites us to be bearers of hope in the midst of a darkness where people are wandering around trying their best to find purpose in a world that seems to simply tease them with it and then pull it away. To find comfort in things that are ultimately enslaving them. And we are invited to be bearers of light in that darkness. But in order to do that, we have got to be willing to submit our little kingdoms to him. We have got to be willing to take the things that we consider to be ours and say, God, I want you to be the Lord of my life. I'm tired. I am exhausted of trying to be the captain of my own ship and keep this ship afloat. So let me ask you a couple questions this morning. And I don't want you to just answer them knee-jerk. I want you to seriously consider them. Are you willing to submit your kingdom to God so that you can take part in his kingdom? Are you willing to lay down your right to be the captain of your own ship and invite him to ultimately direct your steps, to be the Lord of your life? Are you willing to take all of your stuff, your time, your talents, your treasures, the things that you've accumulated, and ultimately put them before God and say, Here I am and everything I have. Help yourself to me. Use me, God, for your glory to advance your kingdom. Because that's ultimately the the decision that we have before us. Do we continue to try to live life as if we are in charge and we are in control? Or do we submit control of our lives to him and say, you guide my steps, regardless of where that leads? Now I know intellectually my answers to those questions. But I also know that my actions sometimes don't line up with what my heart or my head says. 
I say, yes, I want you to be the Lord of my life. Yes, I want to be part of your kingdom. Take my kingdom. I get off the throne of my heart because I can only have one Lord. I want you to sit on the throne of my heart. And yet, I keep trying to grab the wheel back from him. And yet, sometimes it's very, very difficult to submit because, quite honestly, it's scary to relinquish control. We are a people who are addicted to at least feeling like we can control our world. And so we run after things that we think can give us some semblance of control. Money. Connections, right? The right people. Surrounding ourselves with the right people. Looking a certain way so that people will accept us, so that we will be lovable. All those kind of things. We run after them. And when we feel out of control, then we try to anesthetize ourselves with food and alcohol and drugs and pornography and whatever else you might want to add into that list. Some people just run into the gym all the time. Or, you know, for me, it's books. I constantly, when I, I know I'm in a bad place when I'm just reading voraciously because it's a way to numb out my angst and my feelings of the world is not right. I am not right. I feel out of control. And then, sometimes, the reason that we hold God at harm's length is because we're terrified that he's going to ask us to relinquish something that we feel like we need that we simply can't do without. He's going to ask us to give up our stuff or give up the drug that we use to numb. And so we say, yes, God, you can be my Lord, and we pay him lip service, while at the same time we're kind of holding it back like Schmeagel with our precious, going, you know, don't don't ask me for this. You can have everything but this. And I'll tell you guys, by our own strength, we are in the same position that Adam and Eve were. We are in the same position that the Israelites were, because we are far closer to them than we are to Jesus in terms of our heart and our habits. But there's good news in this because the same God that rose Jesus from the dead lives in us. The same spirit that brought Jesus out of the grave, triumphing over sin and death, lives in us. And that Holy Spirit that empowered the disciples to radically transform the world is offered to us. When we say yes to Jesus Christ, and we, see, we often say, Jesus, come into my heart. It's the Holy Spirit that enters in and begins to clean house. And I will tell you this, and we don't have time to really dive deep into it this morning, but we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the Holy Spirit over the next couple of months as we're working through the book of Acts. Because as somebody has said, the book of Acts could probably be called the book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because it's the Holy Spirit empowering these ragtag group of disciples to transform the world. And that same Spirit is available for us. And I will tell you that we will not be able to accomplish anything of any lasting gain without the enablement of the Holy Spirit. So this morning, in the the few minutes that we have left, I simply want to create a little bit of space. And we're going to continue to create space, both in our services, but also in these things like I was mentioning earlier, this uh, on the third Wednesday night of prayer and worship. We're just going to start carving out space for us to sit with our God and say, Holy Spirit, come. So here's what I'd like us to do. I'm going to invite the band to come forward, and they're going to play. But during this next song, I don't, you don't need to sing along. What I'd really love for you to do is have a conversation with God. What I would love for you to do 
is to breathe spiritually. And here's what I mean. We all want to be able to inhale the Holy Spirit and then have him fill us up. But sometimes what hinders him from coming in is that our lungs are already full of a whole bunch of gunk that we need to get out. One of the greatest things that can hinder us from both hearing and being responsive to the Holy Spirit is unconfessed sin in our hearts. And so if it, using this analogy of breathing, the breathing out is simply confession. Here I am, God. This is what I'm struggling with. Bringing it before him. It's already been paid for on the cross. But in a lot of ways, it's, it's confessing what is that precious thing that we are unwilling to let go of, that we've been huddling in the corner, hiding from him, resisting him because of. And as we exhale, it's simply a declaration of here it is, I submit it to you. And then we inhale the Holy Spirit and just say, please come in, fill me, work in me. And so, Father, in the words of of David in Psalm 139, we invite you to search us and know us. Would you shine the light of your presence into our innermost being and reveal to us the things that are getting in the way and would you give us the courage to lay them down? so that we can be filled by your spirit. And for those of you, as you're sitting here, if you, sometimes our body posture follow, our hearts follow our body posture. If you want to get on your knees, we've got this area up front. I'm going to be down here. I just welcome you to come and join me on your knees. Or you can just do it right there in your seats. But now let's spend a few minutes just sitting with our God and inviting him to minister to us and laying down the things that get in the way so that his spirit can fill us up and send us out.